Hello, you're listening to Generation Squeeze's Hard Truths. I'm Megan Wild. Today, Andrea Long and I will be talking to Natasha Salonen, the 29-year-old mayor of Wilmot Township in Ontario. You may have heard her story last summer in the national media. Despite earning around $90,000 a year, she can't afford a home in the municipality she leads. I do live at home with my parents. Living in this region is really not attainable for a young professional who has university debt, and I know I'm certainly not alone in that. Her story really captured the generational unfairness of our housing crisis. But she also showed how sharing our stories can be a powerful act that sways hearts and minds. So listeners, we know you've got some stories to tell about how generational unfairness affects your life, whether it's housing, childcare, any of our issues. So if you feel inspired by this episode, please consider sharing your story with us on our website, gensqueeze.ca. Okay, now for our interview with Mayor Natasha Salonen. Thanks so much for having me today, Megan. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And we thought that it might be helpful to sort of kick off the conversation just by having you tell us maybe a little bit about your community. Where is it located in Ontario? What broader region are you a part of? And what is the housing situation like in your area? Yes, absolutely. So Wilmot Township is a beautiful rural community of about 22,000 people. We're in southwestern Ontario about 15 minutes from the cities of Kitchener and Waterloo. So just nestled in the nice little countryside along the Nith River. We are a municipality that belongs to an upper tier government structure as well, which is the region of Waterloo. In terms of housing, we're pretty accurate to the rest of the country right now. We are at a deficit of number of actual physical homes versus the demand. We also are about an hour and a half outside of the GTA. So we are starting to see a lot of people who want larger properties, be in smaller communities come out this way. And with that, we're seeing uh, the price of housing go up drastically compared to what it was historically here. And also being a rural municipality made up of multiple uh, smaller towns and a few traditional neighborhoods with the classic single family detached home, garage, backyard. We don't really have a great housing mix in Wilmot. So uh, yeah, it tends to be large single detached homes, which is fantastic. But of course, that doesn't serve everyone who needs a home. And also rental markets are very small. We don't really have a lot of overturn in the few rentals that we do have. So that's creating constraints as well for the community, especially as we see our aging population um, who don't necessarily want to maintain and upkeep huge houses that they no longer need all the space. We're finding issues of how do they stay in the community. That would be kind of a general snapshot, I would say, of what we have. Well, I wonder if you could give us a more specific snapshot then of your story there and your situation with housing. Yeah, for sure. So I am a part of the millennial generation as a recently 29-year-old, and I'm much like most of my generation in that I cannot afford to live in Wilmot Township with our current cost of living and just general cost of housing. It's not something that's attainable. Like I said, we don't have any smaller homes really 
or different types of housing beyond large single detached. So the market itself, what exists, the last average I heard was $940,000 is the average cost of a home right now in Wilmot Township. So I've actually seen many people I went to high school with had to leave the area to find something affordable, which is really unfortunate in terms of growth of our community. We're losing a lot of people who want to be here and who want to contribute to the community through volunteerism and other areas that are very much dying and depleting. And yet those volunteers are being sent away because they can't afford to live here. So they move elsewhere. We're also seeing a big change in our demographics. Like I mentioned, we have an aging population. And we're finding a lot of issues finding personal support workers and nurses who are able to come out and provide medical care that these individuals might be needing as they age. Because again, a nurse or a PSW can't afford to live in Wilmot Township. So again, we're not unique across the country. We know that houses since 2019 have gone up by, I think the treasurer's report federally was over 90%. Um, And we're really starting to feel that pinch. And this is where I really identify with your, uh, we're feeling that squeeze. So we're certainly working on different ways to bring affordable housing. But right now, we're definitely feeling that pinch. Yeah, with an average cost of 940000 I can uh, certainly imagine many people are feeling that pinch. Uh, Megan and I are both coming to the podcast from uh, Metro Vancouver, so we are certainly understand that situation. But 940000 in a community outside of the GTA is really quite an astonishing number. So I wonder if you might share with us how have people reacted to that? How have people reacted to somebody, you know, who's a leader in their community saying, I'm not sure I can really afford to live here? And I found it's been really interesting. Certainly um, some people saying, oh, well, you know, that's ridiculous. She just isn't financially responsible, which is not true, but I think is actually a bigger point showing that there are some generations who don't realize the financial changes that we've seen actually across North America and even the fact that we now have generations. So again, I'm focusing on millennials because I'm one and I just know the data, but millennials now, we've peaked at the age of 35 and have less than 5% of the national GDP is held within the millennial wealth pocket versus Boomers, when they were at the peak of 35, they had almost 50% of the country's wealth within their age demographic. So part of that, I think, is it was eye-opening that not everyone realizes that we're in a housing crisis. And then there was a lot of feedback from people like, thank you so much, because I feel really alone when I'm living with my parents and a master's student or honestly, lots of different stories of younger folks who just can't get into the housing market or don't want to rent because it's not financially helping them save up for their long-term goals of wanting to be in the housing market. I also had people reach out to on a really interesting like societal level talking about how in their cultures, multi-generational living is common. And in fact, that, you know, maybe we should start looking at as one of the solutions for this housing crisis. If we do start look at multi-generational living, there are a lot of potential benefits that can come from it. But I think if that's a way that our society may at some point be more accepting of and adapt to, we should then be building houses appropriately where 
you know, you don't have a tiny little room. I mean, I'm fortunate my parents have a large enough home that I have my own space, but I know many people I spoke to said, you know, they have a small little room that they're in and they have no personal space. So I think we need to work with developers on, you know, how do we build houses that are potentially going to have multiple generations in them and different parents and families living together at once. I think we can design homes better for that. Because I think that's one step. As we all know, there's no one fix-all magic solution for the housing crisis. And then just there were a few funny ones. Um, I got a few offers of marriage in exchange like for houses and stuff. Wow. There's the answer to the housing crisis. Marry somebody who always owns a home. Exactly. I just wanted to, Megan, if you don't mind, I just wanted to quickly go back to um, something you said at the beginning of that answer, because I think it's so important and something that really resonates with Jen's squeeze about how many younger people are feeling like they must be failing personally, that they're doing something wrong. Uh, and that's why they're not getting ahead. They're not able to you know, get out of their parents' homes. They're not able to find a place of their own. That is something that we've seen so much of. And I think we're working really hard to say to people, hey, like, it's not individual choices. It's not because you own a cell phone with an expensive data plan. It's not because you're eating too much avocado toast. Like, it's none of these ridiculous statements that uh, get often get made about younger folks these days and that they're not, you know, adequately financial planning. It is a broader systemic shift that is making hard work no longer pay off for people the way it did for previous generations. Um, so I just wanted to, I just wanted to go back to that point and really underscore it because I think it's super, it's super critical for people to understand that about the housing crisis. It's not is not an individual problem, and there are no individual solutions either. You can maybe hack a solution, a temporary fix, um, but we're not solving the problem with individuals acting alone. Absolutely. Historically, in the 70s, it would take about five years of work on an average salary in Canada to be able to get your 20% down payment for a home. And now those numbers Again, depending on where you are in the country, are ranging anywhere from 17 to I've heard 28 years now of again somebody working, starting out in their early 20s, young professional making an average wage. So, I mean, when we look at data like that, I think it helps people really understand and realize it's not just an individual, but it of course can be so isolating, especially when the narrative at least certainly for me growing up, is, you know, you do high school, you go off to university, you get a home, get married. Like, there was a path set out kind of concept that um, now once we're here, it's not as realistic as what we thought it was. And so it does feel like a personal failure and something that really isn't talked about that much. Again, that was something I was surprised by was just the amount of people who even said, thank you for being the I'm going to use quotes around prominent because, again, I'm small rural municipality, but for being a prominent person, sharing your story because it makes people realize it. success can be a whole range of different things. But what we think someone in a successful role and then measure that to their ability to purchase a home can really highlight and help people not feel alone and see that they are not the only person who's living with their parents. I hope you can tell us more about how these conversations have gone in your community. Because I remember one thing that jumped out at me when I was reading your story in the news this summer was you describing how when you get together with other mayors that you're the only one at the table that's not a homeowner. And mm-hmm. and you've talked about this surprises people in your own community when they realize these stark differences and 
generational wealth and home ownership rates. So I wonder when, especially when you talk about these things with older homeowners, how do you do it in a way that is productive and how do they react? Because I know one of our frequent accusations we feel is that we're pitting generations against each other. And just by talking about these differences, like how do you have those conversations? How do they go? What are they like? Yeah. And I think that's an important part to acknowledge is that although my experience generationally is different than those before us, I'm not blaming anyone. And I know that that is sometimes how the conversations go or portrayed in media and different sources. That certainly for me is not productive. It's just about here's where we are now. How can we move forward, acknowledge this, and then work together towards a goal? I also find speaking in my community with people about it, a lot of them might not even realize that they know it's a problem. But once you start talking, they go, oh, yeah, you know what? My niece or nephew still lives with my brother or sister and or even their own kids. They're like, yeah, our kids are, you know. 28 and 30 and they're still in the house or even people now who I've spoken to who just became empty nesters and their kids are off at university. They're like, oh yeah, no, we have no plans for their bedroom because we're expecting them to be coming back there after they graduate. I think inadvertently people do see it happening. They just, because they aren't the ones necessarily personally experiencing it, They might not realize to what level this is actually happening. So I find there's common ground to be found when we do have a lot of people who live here who want to be close to their kids. A lot of people my age are starting to have their families and grandparents want to be near. So when you start talking to them about if we had something like perhaps some townhomes in this new subdivision, your kid might be able to purchase something like that and then they can live in your community. And I find it really opens up the conversation a lot more when you put it in their personal life context of who it's impacting in their life and how they can help the situation. As well as we're also seeing, like I said, a lot of our seniors are feeling the similar pinch in that they're like, well, I have this large house. Kids are all moved out, but I have nowhere else to move and they want to stay in the community. So in fact, I see a lot of what when I was growing up would be called an entry level home could also be a more towards the end of life home. I think that they could benefit both having smaller square footage, more reasonable prices to get in that are attainable. So you're not carrying a mortgage that's going to cripple you. Or in the case of a senior, you know, they might be able to sell their house for enough that and their mortgage is paid off or able to pay the remainder off and go mortgage free on a smaller home. So again, I find really relating it back and I have yet to find someone who in their life in some capacity doesn't know an individual being impacted by the cost of housing across the country. Yeah, I think that's really apt. And I think you're absolutely right that there are so so many impacts, uh, some of which are talked about more than others, that uh, it is hard, I think, for most people to escape seeing some aspect of it. I mean, even with respect to some of the alarming stories about university students, <laughs> now you're sending your kid off to university and they're having to go to a food bank or live in a shelter because they can't uh, they can't afford the basic living costs. Right. So you kind of talked a little bit there about you know, what some of the parameters for solutions might be to the problems that we're uh, facing around housing in this country and in your region in particular. So, you know, I'm curious, like we at Gen Squeeze tend to talk a lot about 
provincial and federal governments and the policies and enabling conditions and funding that they need to put in place as the levels of government with the most money, the most capacity to change the way in which we raise money and, and the amount of it. But you know, you're a municipal level leader. So I guess I'm curious two things. Like one, what do you think you can do in your community? Like what are the actions you see municipalities being able to take? Mm-hmm. And then when you're trying as a municipal leader to take those actions, like what do you want other levels of government to do? Like how can provinces and the federal government be supportive? Where can they step in to try and help municipalities who are the on the ground kind of epicenter of some of these housing challenges? For sure. Um, I mean, one thing I definitely want to stress is that I think regardless of the level of government, we are all looking for the same outcome, and that's to be able to have more people adequately housed, enter the housing market freely should they choose. And I think certainly in Ontario, that's really clear. The province has a goal of 1.5 million homes they want to build to deal with the housing crisis. And I mean, the federal government's doing their housing accelerator fund as well, which has been questioned by some provinces. So I think Everyone wants to help solve the problem at government. It's figuring out the best avenue there. At the local level, we have a few different things we can do. I mean, one, we're the level who creates community and where people actually live. We are more of that tangible service delivery area. And we're also the ones who do zoning applications. So we can look at different types of zoning. I know... um, There's some really unique ideas coming out of the U.S. and other areas in terms of year-round trailer parks. We could look at zoning like that so that the price of property is removed from the cost of housing. We actually do have a community that's about 25 years old now in Wilmot called Morningside. And when I say trailer park, I know there's a lot of stereotypes. It's just what the model's referred to as. These are full like houses. You would never call it a trailer park if you drove up to it. There is no trailer in sight. But it took the trailer park model (laughs) of that the community as a whole owns the land. So you're an ownership partner in all of the land, which removes the personal investment when you buy a house, the property being so expensive, which is an issue we have out here is the cost of property in real estate is very expensive. So they're all nice bungalows that they have. And even with our average over $900,000 homes, they're still um, a more affordable option for people because they don't actually own the land on which their house is on. So we can start looking at zoning like that. And again, that would require zoning from the municipal level of government. Um, I would also say another part that we can do is at the local level, we have a lot of NIMBYism. So a lot of not in my backyard people. We've even seen it at our council there's a subdivision going in that uh, the proposal came forward with some townhomes in it, as well as single detached homes. And there are people there saying, you know, this is not an appropriate use of land to have townhomes here. It doesn't fit the neighborhood. So having that conversation and understanding in our general community that Well, having townhomes allows more of your community members to stay here or to move here or your kids to be here. And how, although you may like your single detached home, that's not what everyone needs. Some people want apartments or condo units. So again, I think everyone should have the right to be a part of the process as we grow as communities. But I think bring them along and bring them into the understanding of 
why we build different types of houses and having those conversations continually really breaks down those barriers for people. Also, I mean, we're open to innovative solutions and speaking with some of our employers and we have one long-term care facility in Wilmot and I was speaking with their director there and he was saying it's estimated in the industry in Ontario in long-term care, fully employed staff, about five to 10% are deemed unhoused and are either living out of their cars or living on someone's couch. And it's just due to, despite the fact they're fully employed, they just can't afford anything. So we've been chatting about the potential of looking at, you know, is there a way to work with developers and some land that they have to maybe build affordable housing for their employees? And bring the employer back into the conversation. And um, now one thing that you'd asked about other levels of government and what I'd like them to do, I would really love for all three levels of government to sit down and cohesively come up with a strategy. Right now, what we're seeing is just everyone wanting to help with the crisis of housing, but in their own way and uncoordinated and it actually results in, at the lower level, a lot of headaches. Um, when we have all these different applications coming through from different levels of government, suddenly opening up funding streams, those are not quick and easy applications to apply for and go through. And that's, again, taking more of our already strained staff resources and putting them towards applying for funding versus if we had from... It doesn't need to be the federal government, but a federal strategy at that level organized of how to address housing, what level of government does what, how they all stay in their own lanes, but help each other. That type of coordination high level would be really helpful for addressing the housing crisis, reducing barriers on the logistical side, as well as funding. I will never say no to funding. <laughs> My thing is get more funds through to the municipalities who can actually use them in the places where we're building houses and community, but have really an overarching cohesive plan for everyone to work towards. Uh, you mentioned you had studied in the UK, and so you have there again another unique perspective on the housing situation because you've seen the situation in another country. Do you, Have you got any other ideas from having lived abroad? That is a great question that nobody has actually asked. Um, I would say yes, absolutely. So I did my whole undergrad in the UK. So that was a full three years that I spent over there. Of course, I wasn't working in government and I was living on campus for all three of those years. But I do think that that does still certainly inform some of the ways that I think about things when it comes to the housing crisis. And of course, uh, the UK, as well as most of the Western world, is experiencing this housing crisis. So it's not like they have it sorted and figured out themselves. <laughs> um, but in Waterloo Region, we have two universities and a college. So we have University of Waterloo, Wilfrid Laurier University, and Conestoga College, which Conestoga College actually has a huge number of international students. But one thing that's very interesting is they do not have an adequate residence buildings. So working with universities on having enough residence spaces and building those spaces or purchasing land for students to live. Um, so I think certainly looking on demand side of having proper housing for students in areas that they're going to can help trickle and have a domino effect on the housing crisis, whether it be 
people wanting to just purchase homes or just rent as well. Um, and that certainly perspective, I don't think I would have if I didn't go to university as an international student where accommodation was provided for my whole degree. And then another thing that I'm really interested in and actually working on getting off the ground. So my alma mater did actually host um, to address their housing crisis in the UK, something called a housing sprint. And it takes Google's design sprint idea of a five day intensive where you walk in with just ideas and by Friday you have an actual app. Um, they took this concept and modified it into three days and made it, they brought in, it was quite interesting, no politicians, but all levels of government were represented and then academics, organizations similar to Gen Squeeze, but UK equivalents. So think tanks and industry and just a whole scope of people in a room for three days trying to solve the problem. And they came out with that recommendations on how to address the issues that ranged not just housing specific, but also had things on what they can do with their pension program and how that can help with flow of income between different generations. Um, and that was really fascinating. Granted, the government has not employed all of these things that they've done. So there are, of course, limitations, but they got the conversation going. And that's something that I would love to see here. As I already mentioned, I think we need to have something at a larger federal level kind of overview of how do we address this from all different angles that can all help impact uh, housing. And some of that, I would say, is certainly informed from being in the UK. It's good to know that people like you are thinking widely about uh, solutions, just inspiring to to see how deeply and how widely you've thought about the problem and what the different pieces of it are and who we can bring together to help contribute to solutions. I think your point about em employers is really an okay. interesting one. I mean, we're seeing those conversations in Metro Vancouver happening with mm -hmm. employers not being able to attract the workers they need in part because workers can't afford to live uh, near where those jobs are. So, you know, when land values are so high, it's it's a high bar for employers to think about, like, how can they play in that sort of space? But I think, you know, bringing them to the table and is really critical uh, in terms of just building broader sort of momentum around solutions. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to just pick up on, you mentioned a couple of things, but I think the one I'll pick up on is you actually talked about like the demand side of the equation. That's something that Gen Squeeze is really concerned about as well. And I think it's less a part of the political and public dialogue on housing than the supply side. Like people seem comfortable talking about we need to build more homes and we need to build homes of different types. And like you already acknowledged the NIMBY, <laughs> not in my backyard dimension, like certainly it's not free of obstacles, the supply side, but like that seems to be a more comfortable space. The demand side solutions don't seem to be as comfortable space for conversations about housing other than like sort of targeting what we tend to call the easy villains, right? Like, mm -hmm. yes, let's get at those mean spirited developers who are, you know, charging too much, or let's look at uh, exploitive uh, lending practices or short-term rentals, I think is a bit of a safer space now too. But, you know, there are, I think, solutions that the governments are not really jumping into yet around um, demand side of housing, including things like, you know, how we treat housing in terms of taxation and how, you know, when you're living in your principal residence, your home, mm -hmm. that wealth you gain is not at all subject to taxation. And, you know, that's a 
very sensitive space. We are very careful in how we talk about that. And we are not talking about capital gains taxes. But, you know, there are real questions there about are there ways we can capture some of the housing wealth, not just for people's private gains, but to support sort of broader public aspirations around making sure people have safe and affordable and suitable places to call home. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, like from your perspective, uh, you know, at the municipal level and somebody who's clearly thinking a lot about, you know, wanting to engage others in a more coordinated kinds of responses, like, how do you see that we can encourage politicians and, and maybe folks in the public as well to have that sort of bravery to say, like, hey, these are uncomfortable conversations. These may be less popular solutions, um, but we should at least put them on the table. We need to be talking about some of these things that are more difficult uh, for us to wrestle with because, you know, things just aren't the same as they were 40, 50 years ago about our housing market. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the policies we put in place then just are no longer up to the task. So I'm, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about, you know, that political bravery piece. How do we how do we help people cultivate that? You clearly have it. I seems like you're uh, pretty out there <laughs> with your views. So how do we help other people have that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm someone who likes to be analytical and know my stuff before I get into, you know, a ring and openly talking about it. And I would say that's probably true of a lot of people and certainly politicians. I mean, I like to think that politicians are in their jobs and careers because they want to better their communities. I will leave it at that's what I would like to think. But if you go with that train of thought, I think, honestly, if you just start bringing information to a point where it can't be ignored and you get the conversation, even if part of it's grassroots, like I said, at the municipal level, talking to our community members about how are you impacted, even if you own your own house, even if you own it outright, you're still impacted by the housing crisis. So again, everyone is impacted by the housing crisis, whether you know it or not. Um, So I think having those conversations, making it more commonplace, um, if your residents and community start talking about it, it becomes a lot more common to talk about and not as taboo. And then eventually it will come to a point where policy has to reflect that because people will be demanding these conversations happen. And it's also our media not letting it go and continuing like there's something about housing every week in the media that I find nationally Um, So continuing to have that, eventually somebody's going to have to do something about it and start to speak up. So just continuing to put pressure on in that sense. But also, I'm not one for complaining and not coming with ideas. So I would just say to making it positive, focused and values based on, you know, well, this is an opportunity. Like when I briefly touched on was as we're looking to build a huge amount of houses across the country and homes for people, why don't we look at how do we build homes that better suit people? So like I said, whether it be some more multi-generational types of housing units that better suit those families, or whether it be homes that are barrier-free entry so people with mobility issues can get in, but then it also helps someone with a stroller. So I think also if you focus the conversation about opportunity, that you might have more politicians willing to talk about it and look at, okay, there is an opportunity here to do something really great. And I'm glad you didn't ask me about like taxation policies we could change because I'm not an economist. No, no, we know that space. That's (laughs) We wouldn't put you on the spot for that. 
<laughs> you have touched a few times on the importance of conversation. And I, I wonder if you can say more about that, because obviously you're unique being a millennial mayor. And have you seen examples in your experience that demonstrate just how important conversation can be and, and talking about ideas and it has so much power and is so critical. And as a millennial mayor, do you have thoughts on that? Of course. I think every idea and even every rule that governs us now came out of an idea that somebody had in an initial conversation. Ideas and policies don't exist in a vacuum. So they have to be discussed to even get the ball rolling and moving. One example I just always find mind-boggling is, you know, women only became persons in Canada in the 1900s. Like, that required, obviously, a lot of conversations. And I think one of the biggest power that people have as individuals is the ability to have conversations. Because, yeah, not everybody has a job like me where they sit at a table with five fellow counselors and get to make local bylaws and policy and zoning changes. But that's also all informed by our community. And so, yeah, I certainly think, like I said, having those conversations. We've also seen people on social media, a lot of things that blow up quite a lot that were not really in the public sphere, but because people start talking about it on TikTok and Instagram, it becomes a thing. Even the actual, the idea of avocado toast being the reason I can't afford a house or anyone in my age group, That is because people talked about it as a concept and an idea. So it can work both ways. It can be a negative or a positive. And from a human nature and behavior perspective, your brain has to be primed in order to accept an idea and a concept. So even just knowing how your human brain functions, if you hear the conversation once, you're probably not going to remember it. You might remember the person and a tone they were portraying, but you're not going to inherently remember and believe what they were telling you or agree with what they were telling you or form your own opinion. Once you hear it two times, you're a bit more inclined to and open to the idea because you're already primed to it. So The more you have conversations and the more that people talk about it, we hear about it in the media, the more people are willing and open to engage with that idea. And also conversations is where ideas come from. So, I mean, I have a great example of that, actually, that I didn't mention before about uh, UK influencing me. But I was back in the UK the other week for a wedding and I was staying with two of my friends from university who live in... uh, It's called a council estate. It's just outside of Oxford. And they're building, it's an environmentally um, forward community uh, with houses that are built sustainably with heat source pumps. And they're using renewable energies. And like every house has capability to have solar panels on it. And it's a really cool community here developers who are doing that, you're seeing like a $100,000 markup on those houses. Over there, these are actually the attainable houses being built. And so I was chatting to them and actually we went to their developer, a three-day trip. And there I am with my friends at their local developer's office, learning about how their community works. Um, But we were chatting and actually their council in their municipality, bought this land from um, the British Army. It was just excess land that the Army had. 
So they bought it. And then what they do is essentially put in all of your hookups for plumbing and electrical and a concrete slab and you buy the concrete slab. So they've reduced the issue that we tend to have here of prospective buyers buying outside of developable land, making real estate prices go up, and then trying to get a return on investment out of the land portion. Um, So we have a lot of agricultural land that goes for very high prices, even though it's zoned as agricultural, because people prospectively think in 20 and 30 years time, that'll be housing. Whereas this completely removes it because the local council buys the property. So I, of course, come back with all of these different brochures and flyers about how this eco community was started out in Mr. Uh, Village and <laughs> come to my housing department. And I'm like, so how does council buy a plot of land and do this? And to be fair, and speaking it out with my development department, which are an amazing group of people. They didn't say no, but they did explain the barriers and differences in which municipalities over in the UK do purchase land and smaller municipalities comparable to ours have that type of funding source. We do not. So even just talking through that, okay, really cool idea, really great. Maybe in 30 years time, if we start implementing some stuff, we can do that. I can't do that tomorrow, unfortunately. But again, that was an idea that if I didn't have that conversation, in my mind, this would exist as a perfect solution, but it could never go anywhere. So I think people really devalue the um, power that you have through your words and remembering that and remembering your voice doesn't need to be screaming. You don't need to be the loudest person in the room. And it doesn't even need to be talking to who you think is the right person. So it doesn't need to be them talking to me, but just having a conversation at your dinner table even primes people and gets people talking and thinking about ideas that hopefully will eventually stream into solutions. I totally love the idea of people needing to be primed to ideas. I think that's that's so important. It's absolutely right. It's like so central, I think, to our, the way we're thinking about these issues at Gen Squeeze too. Like, you know, the framing, the values that underpin them, like those things are so important to, to help people sort of see problems in different ways. And when you see a problem in a different way, you see solutions that didn't seem so obvious before too. So I love that way of framing it, priming people to ideas and how important that is. All right. Well, wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Megan and Andrea. I really enjoyed our conversation.